No roof on the stable, got no milk in the crocks. Use rope for suspenders, and a goat ate my shoe. I've got those sharecropping blues. They call it. Hey, Chris Garlock here with this week's Labor History Today. On this week's show, Patrick Dixon talks with James Benton about the emergence of sharecropping as a compromise between former slaves or freedmen and landowners and sharecroppers' subsequent struggles for rights and power. For our Labor History Object of the Week, Ben Blake at the Meany Labor Archives pulls out a collection of buttons from the Solidarity Union Movement in Poland. If you enjoy the Labor History Today podcast, please be sure to spread the word by liking us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to contribute a Labor History item, just shoot us an email at laborhistorytoday at gmail.com and we'll send you details on how you can be part of the podcast. My son's in Jeff City Doing 10 to 15 The old lady left me When the pickings got lean My neighbors can't stand me They all call me bad news I've got the sharecropping blues I mean I'm a hungry I've got those sharecropping on September 25th, 1891, two African-American sharecroppers were killed during an ultimately unsuccessful cotton picker strike in Lee County, Arkansas. By the time the strike had been suppressed, 15 African-Americans had died and another six had been imprisoned. A white plantation manager was killed as well. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon talks with James Benton about the emergence of sharecropping as a compromise between former slaves, freedmen, and landowners and sharecroppers' subsequent struggles for rights and power. James Benton is the Slavery, Memory, and Reconciliation Fellow at Georgetown University. Here's Patrick. Okay, welcome to Labour History Today. Thanks for joining me, James. Sure, no problem. So we're talking about sharecropping today. Now, can you explain to us, to to begin with, some of the broader political context in which sharecropping Mm -hmm. uh, arises in the post-war South? Okay. Generally, toward the close of the Civil War and into the first years of, of Reconstruction, there's a struggle that ensues between the freedmen and the landowners. And the freedmen sought to maintain as much control over their labor as possible, especially in the agrarian, um, in, the, in agriculture, while the uh, landowners still wanted to have as much control as they had had over their labor when slavery was still in existence. And so what you get then is a series of contracts first drawn up among the Union Army in places where they occupied territory during the latter days of the Civil War. And then after the war, the Freedmen's Bureau uh, draws up and ratifies labor contracts as well. That still doesn't satisfy either side. And so 
or especially the landowners. So sharecropping arises as a, a bit of a compromise where the planters get a guaranteed source of labor and the freedmen uh, gain an opportunity to gain some limited autonomy over their work. Uh, but it was, it was a, a flawed system in that sense uh, because even though you had an agreement between the worker and the landowner, there were still multiple opportunities for abuse. So on the surface of it, paying a share of your crop in lieu of rent doesn't <clears throat> seem inherently unfair, but in many ways it was. Can, right. can you explain why? Yeah, and the, the, the system that we're referring to is basically this. The sharecropper would give one-third of the crop that he grew to the planter every year. Uh, but out of that two-thirds that, that the sharecropper got, he had to sell that that crop and then pay for seed, fertilizer, pesticide, tools, food and clothing, medical care, and other needs out of that share. And often those those share that that uh, those materials were bought from the planter at inflated prices. And in some cases, you might have an example where a sharecropper could be doing really well in terms of growing growing crops but might get cheated. Uh, maybe a landowner takes advantage of the fact that the sharecropper is illiterate. Maybe the sharecropper gets um, you know, overcharged, like I just said. But, but the system basically really operated to keep the, the farmer, the sharecropper, in as close a uh, state of debt peonage as possible. Uh, free in a sense of the word, but but not necessarily free to build uh, a, a strong economic base. So, so I, that's why it's not. That's why it wasn't fair. So, I understand many sharecroppers resisted this system and some of its abuses. Mm -hmm. How how did they do that? And was it very dangerous to do so? Was there a great risk involved? Yeah, there were there were several instances of organized rebellion against the sharecropping system. <clears throat> Two of the most notable ones, or three of the most notable ones, occur in the 1930s and, and amid the Great Depression. Those would be the Sharecroppers Union, which organized in 1931 in Alabama uh, with support from the Communist Party, uh, the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, which organizes a few years later, 35 or so in Arkansas, and then um, a mass disobedience event that involved about 1,500 evicted sharecroppers in early 1939 in in southern Missouri, the the, the southern counties of Missouri that are called the Boot Hill, uh, that border Arkansas. Um, and in all of these cases, you had sharecroppers dema making demands uh, such as the right to grow their own crops, the right to sell the excess of crops on the on the open market. Um, government action for aid uh, from the New Deal and the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, and just basically meeting basic needs, housing, uh, food, and uh, better work conditions run through this. All three of these groups um, are somewhat interracial, even though the Sharecroppers Union starts out as an interracial black-white organization and 
states and gradually becomes exclusively black. The Southern Tenant Farmers Union remains an interracial organization and this disobedience of the sharecroppers in the in Missouri it, it too was a was a uh, interracial sort of event so so you have these examples was it dangerous yes many times um, these organizations f faced economic intimidation they faced uh, state violence vigilante violence other forms of coercion. And I, I, I found a couple of examples. Uh, Reverend T.A. Allen, for instance, was a Mississippi preacher, and he, he sought to start a sharecroppers union uh, in, in 1935. He actually was seized by a group of landowners who were offended by his raising awareness of sharecropping rights and uh, trying to create this union. He was seized, shot, and thrown into the river. Um, another person in Alabama that same year by the name of Joe Spinner Johnson, uh, who's a leader of the Sharecroppers Union, was accosted, tied up, beaten, taken to a jail, further beaten, and his body was later found uh, mutilated in, in an area near Greensboro, Alabama. So, so the, the protests against the conditions of sharecropping could be quite steep. You know, it could lead to quite steep circumstances. And in these two cases, people paid for it with their lives. Mm. Sharecropping doesn't seem like it would be a very efficient system in the context of an increasingly mechanized agriculture as you enter the 20th century. When does it fall into decline? It falls into decline, into decline relatively quickly for a number of reasons. Between the 1920s and the 1950s, um, you get the assault of the boll weevil and through much of the South. You get um, the Great Migration in which African Americans are either, are, are either moving north in search of opportunity or moving north to get away from violence in the South. Uh, Later in the 30s, uh, toward, the, toward the advent of World War II, you get, you get a greater demand for work in the defense plants. Uh, and right about that time, there's also uh, farm companies are developing automatic, automated uh, cotton pickers, for instance. Uh, agriculture becomes more mechanized, and there is a, there's much less of a need for for workers in the fields. And so by the late 1940s, between the end of World War II, uh, creating a lower demand for raw materials and the increased mechanization of agriculture, uh, that, that too leads to a further uh, disintegration of, of the sharecropping system. In the news recently, there's been, I mean, over the last couple of years, a lot of discussion about Confederate monuments and mm -hmm. the way in which people remember this, both the Civil War and the system that preceded it. Yeah. But people don't seem to be quite as uh, aware of sharecropping, which, as you've described, went on for nearly a century. Why do you mm -hmm. think that is? I tend to think that sharecropping doesn't get a lot of attention because it's largely well it's rural but it's also overshadowed by so many so many larger developments in 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 american history during that time 
um, certainly agrarian movements were active, but they tended to be among farmers who actually owned their own land, not so much tenant farmers or sharecroppers. Tenant farmers being people who work on rented land as opposed to sharecroppers who are working for a share of, of the crop they raise. Uh, and then I just, I just think that there's this view that sharecroppers don't have any agency, that they are just poor and that these things hap these bad things happen to them. And yet uh, historians have, have documented in telling the stories of, of the sharecroppers union and the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, uh, they've documented ways in which sharecroppers were interested in improving their conditions and improving their pay and demanding uh, aid from the government, especially during the New Deal years, uh, when payments that were destined for them were actually intercepted by landowners and, and planters. Uh, so, so there's, I, I feel that there's just a, a disconnect through much of the public about sharecropping. The only way you could really learn about this outside of reading this is to have actually experienced some of it. And, you know, even though I didn't experience it, I did learn about it through, through my parents and grandparents. My grandparents on my father's side were sharecroppers for a time. And both in Georgia and in North Carolina, where they moved in the 20s to get away from boll weevil infestation. So I just think that there's just a, a lack of awareness about the role that sharecropping plays. So that's probably why. Thank so, you. Sure. All right. <laughs> this, was, this was actually fun. On August 14, 1980, members of the Upstart Polish Union Solidarity seized the Lenin shipyard in Gdansk. Sixteen days later, the government officially recognized the Union. Many consider the event the beginning of the end for the Iron Curtain. All right, so we're back at the uh, the mini archives. Is that is that what we're going by now, Ben? Mini, mini Labor History Archives. Oh, it's such a shorter name. All right, we're with, with of course, Ben Blake. And Ben, uh, you've got a friend now. Why don't you uh, introduce uh, who, who, the other person that we've got here? Yes, we've just we've got a new staff person in the archives, the labor archives here, uh, Alan Weirdak, and he's a great addition to our staff and has been doing a lot of great work uh, posting things online to get him out there so people uh, know about us and know what we have. All right. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. All right, so Ben, um, let's go ahead and we're going to be talking about uh, Solidarność uh, or Solidarity, as we say in English, the Solidarity Movement. Um, and I know you have all kinds of stuff. Uh, Lane Kirkland, of course, was a huge supporter of that. So there's lots and lots of stuff in the archives. Uh, why don't you talk about what you've pulled out for us today? Well, we've got a collection of buttons here, uh, various uh, Solidarność buttons. Uh, that were produced to show solidarity. I think some of them were not sure, but probably were created in Poland, and then some of them in the United States. So you have some are actually in Polish, and then others uh, are are printed in English. Uh, but it's a, the great uh, solidarność symbol. I think is pretty iconic with the red uh, letters and, and the flag. Uh, is just a wonderful symbol, and I think it really. Uh, I think came to symbolize both solidarity in the United States and international solidarity with the Polish workers. 
Yeah, and of course, this was going on at the same time as as uh, the you know the U.S. labor movement struggles with uh, you know Reagan and solidarity. It was I, mean, I remember, you know, folks. It was solidarity was okay as long as it was over there against the communists, but uh, at home, not so much, right? Yeah, the, the double standard there, where yeah, it's like a a strong union movement in Poland is okay. Uh, that's anti-communist and breaking a dictatorship, but in the United States, not the case. Now, these are some sort of regular, I mean, I think a lot of people would recognize these buttons. Uh, they, they look very similar to ones we had here in the U.S., except for the uh, Polish, which I'm not even going to try and, and mangle. You know, my family originally came from Poland, but uh, I don't have that. Um, and then some kind of nice, uh, uh, interesting, uh, different, little bit different style, uh, sort of a, a very light uh, rectangular plastic style, a little bit different than we have in the U.S. Um, I'm wondering if these were are from the Eastern Bloc, from Poland itself. Well, I'm looking at the back of one of the buttons. It has kind of the the Solidarność, like an emblem. Uh, it's like a badge. Yeah, yeah. It's almost uh, it's plastic. But it almost looks kind of porcelain in a way. I thought they were porcelain when I picked them up. They're really light and, and almost, I don't want to say flimsy, but they, uh, I don't want to say cheap, but I mean, it just doesn't have, you know, we were looking at those uh, a few weeks ago, those buttons with the dues buttons, and those were really, you know, clearly pretty high quality and really well made. These these uh, these look like they were, you know, kicked out, uh, but really beautiful buttons. And it looks like this one was, was created in Pol- it's in Polish, and it looks like it looks like maybe Krakow is on the back of the button. So, so really, an original. Yeah, so it actually was would have been worn by a Solidarność uh, member. Very cool. Now, then you have this classic poster, uh, wherever freedom is on the march, labor unions are there with uh, Lech, uh, a young, <laughs> pretty young Lech Valenza. Uh, this is uh, this is back during the AFL's uh, CAO's uh, famous uh, Union Yes campaign. Uh, still subhead here. The more we join together, the more we change the world. Now you had a personal story about this. Uh, what was going on with you? Oh, back uh, when martial law was was declared, I was living in Chicago. I was a teamster, and actually at UPS. I was a preloader at UPS in the local 705, and the teamsters. And uh, some of us heard about martial law and. So we just got together kind of through activists that I knew in the city, and we went down to the Polish consulate on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. And by the time we got down there, there were literally thousands of people protesting martial law in Poland in front of the consulate. It crossed across, shut down most of Lakeshore Drive, and mostly uh, Polish-speaking folks from uh, immigrants from Poland and and then supporters in the U.S. But it was a very powerful demonstration. I'll, I'll never forget it. Now, let me get Alan over here for a sec, because, uh, you know, there are lots and lots of things in the collection, um, including lots of old uh, films, which, of course, are not really that accessible or useful, but you've got something cool. Yeah, they're not, they haven't been very accessible up until now, but what I've been doing is I've been uploading um, a lot of our AFL-CIO films to YouTube, and one of those films is actually about a 12-minute long um, labor-produced documentary about Solidarność, um, where they more... Um, it's kind of, I guess they talk about the movement and it talks about Lech Walesa's life. And um, yeah, that's one of the many films that we've started to upload to YouTube. Uh, I've put up about 30 so far. And yeah, that's one of them. 
So, of course, we've got a link and you can uh, go check it out yourself. But I'm curious about, you know, for you, uh, you know, there's so many films and my guess is that mm, probably they don't all hold up. So how do you how do you decide which ones uh, to upload and, and what's involved in that process? Um, well, I guess it started with um, last week I did uh, some social media for Solidarity Day, um, the original in 1981, it being the uh, anniversary on September 19th. I uploaded that video to YouTube, and then I did an Instagram post with photos from our collections from Solidarity Day. And from there, I kind of just looked for what was relevant. So I found this, and you know, I've always been fascinated with international working class solidarity. So um, in addition to the Solidarność one, another one that really stuck out to me was about um, black trade unions in South Africa. Um, that was something I thought was really rare. Uh, I'd never seen anything like that. Um, so I'd say the two of those and the other ones were uh, about the Freedom Rides in 1961. It's uh, produced by CORE, and I've never seen anything like it. CORE meaning? Um, the Congress for on Racial, Racial Equality, right? Um, so it's produced by CORE, and it's narrated by James Farmer. Um, really fascinating, um, like period, primary source. Um, that's probably been my favorite, I guess, of what I've uploaded so far. The other one is called To Dream, and it's about Martin Luther King, and it's uh, it shows clips of the March on Washington, as well as the AFL-CIO convention in, I believe, 1961, mm -hmm. um, and the speech he gave there. And um, yeah, I'd say of the videos so far that we've uploaded, um, those are the highlights for me. What do those videos, you know, in, in terms of speaking to audiences today, what what are the kind of things do you think that might resonate for folks watching it on, on YouTube today? I think just the previous power of labor unions. Um, and I think we're in a moment today where you're starting to see a lot of strikes and protests going on around the country, hotel workers, teachers. And I think just seeing where we were, um, you know, where the labor movement was and also going in and seeing a lot of these films from the 70s and 80s, they do talk a lot about right to work. They talk a lot about Reaganomics. Um, they talk a lot about, you know, kind of taking the steam out of the labor movement in the 1980s. And I think we're now in this current movement movement or moment where we can start, you know, getting power in unions again. And I think that, you know, this it's really a good idea to provide historical context into the power of unions. Well, thanks very much to both uh, Alan and Ben. Well, thank you. Great. Thanks, Chris. Sharecropping blues. They call it sharecropping, but there's nothing to share. Cause nothing from nothing leaves a handful of air. There ain't nothing left here anybody can use. I've got those sharecropping blues. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Labor History sources include Today in Labor History from Union Communication Services. This week's labor music is Sharecropper's Blues featuring Charlie Barnett with K-Star on vocals. As always, we hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please spread the word by liking and following us on your favorite podcast app. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next week. They all call me bad news. I've got the 
sharecropping blues. I mean, I'm a hungry. I've got those sharecropping blues. 